out of the darkness came light. That's the theme uh, for these few talks working up to Christmas. And one of the ways that we want to just connect, I guess, with where we are today is to just look at some of the things that go on around Christmas and, and maybe connect them to the story of the Bible, to the story of Christmas, reminding ourselves, I guess, uh, what Christmas is all about. Maybe if you're new, maybe listening online or maybe catching up online or with us this afternoon. We, we use the word Christmas so, so easily and quickly. It's just a definition for us which, if you're not embedded in the Christmas story from a Bible point of view, it's just a word. Um, but actually, Christmas is, is very significant. It's Christ Mass, Christ's presence with us. It, it is absolutely rooted in the events of 2,000 years ago. And so all of the excitement and the joy of Christmas, which we experience today, traces its pathway backwards. And that's what we want to, want to connect with over these next few weeks. I want us just for a moment to imagine, to, to jump into the shoes of the children, little children. Maybe if you're able to take your mind back to when you were young uh, and what Christmas was at this point in the year, back end of November into December, what do you remember? I remember, um, well, yeah, I remember the Argos catalogue. And some of you go, yeah, I remember the Argos catalogue. Some of you haven't got a clue what a catalogue is. Catalogue was one of these paper things that you used to look in before you went and bought things. Pre-internet, you know, back in the olden days. But it was a real moment, it was a real time of anticipation. And, and the excitement as a child was, was just building and building and building. And it, the, the, the excitement, I don't know what time you used to get up, I was absolutely shocking. It would be half past four, five o'clock in the morning on Christmas morning. I'm probably just about getting out of that now. Um, really early, and I'd probably start waking up early for about a week before Christmas, not half past four or five o'clock, but I just couldn't switch my brain off from the excitement, the anticipation of Christmas. It has become an incredibly commercialized experience now. If you go into pretty much most garden centers, it's a great place to buy them you can buy some kind of how many sleeps to Christmas thing where you put it on your dresser and it counts it down, little chalkboard, you wipe it off and you put 14, 13, 12 down and you're kind of counting down the, the sleeps till Christmas. That's fascinating to me. I find that fascinating that we, we have and we live as human beings with this idea of anticipation for the thing that is about to happen. That Christmas is going to be the event. Now, 
I, I'm, I know that as we get older that we don't continue with that idea of the anticipation that we had when we were children. But I still think that there is written into us some kind of anticipation. Or we want it or we yearn for it. Or if there, the anticipation isn't there and we kind of push it out and reject it, it's probably because it's let us down in the past. The thing of hope that everybody around us seems to be excited about hasn't delivered for us and so we reject it. It's kind of in the, um, that's the flip side of the same coin of saying that the sense of anticipation that we live as human beings is, it's almost a perpetual experience. We anticipate rest. It's probably, unless you're in a customer-facing, a kind of a commercial, uh, consumer-facing industry, you, you probably see this Christmas time as a time to actually rest a little bit. If you're in that customer-facing industry, you're going to be really busy. So there's rest. There's definitely excess. Food, drink, shooting off all around the country to visit people, all of those kind of things. Deep down, I think there's this kind of emotional experience, a hope for peace and great relationships. We desperately want that idealized idea of the Christmas dinner with everybody around the table, uh, absolutely enjoying themselves and loving the time. And the, there is this sense of anticipation. December the 27th, where are we? Where do we go then? I'll tell you where the, the, the world of sales takes us. Maybe not quite so much in our current situation, but I think it will still be there. The world of sales takes us to the next thing to anticipate. I remember as a child when all of, the chill, all of the great adverts on the TV switched from great adverts to adverts about holidays. That was rubbish because I'm not, I wasn't interested in holidays. I wanted things as a child. But now as adults, we move to the next thing to anticipate. The time away. More rest. More pressure off, more excess, more relationships. And we get through that one and where we go is another anticipation. That here's the reality I think we can say from that sense and that experience that Christmas almost puts a magnifying glass over our pattern of behavior is that as human beings we are constantly looking for the next something. Constantly looking for the next thing to anticipate. The next thing that's going to be worthwhile. The next thing that kicks our lives along the road a little bit more with an injection of joy, an injection of peace, an injection of excitement. And I also know from many conversations that our human experience in that is also very often a moment of despair. 
because we start to realize that then chasing the next hope is a futile experience and task because the next hope never delivers in quite the way that we hoped. <laughs> and so we anticipate for the next one and that doesn't deliver and then we start to step back and ask, what is life all about? If it's just anticipating the next something, where do I go? What we're going to do this afternoon is tie some lines back into the huge storyline of the Bible. And the first one I'm going to take you back to is, is a verse in Jeremiah, which speaks about the idea of anticipation and hope and future. God's people at this moment in time, hundreds of years before Jesus, are in exile. And Jeremiah writes this. He writes the words of God to the people. And he says, this is what God says. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. They are amazing words. If we, could, if we could listen to those and actually believe them, that actually it means something, that God is going to deliver on this promise, that God is actually going to give you and me, in fact, all of his people, he's going to give them something which is hope. He's going to give us a future if God is truly saying that, and we can believe it, they're amazing words. If we can't believe it, if we think it's rubbish, if we think that God is always going to fail to deliver on his promises, then we can ignore the whole of the storyline of God in the world according to the Bible. That's how significant a promise like that is. Can you and I anticipate the promises of God, believe them, and hold on to them. Or to put it another way, is Christmas the bursting out of the hope of that verse? Because I think it is. Let's have a look at what happens. It's actually, we're jumping into post the kind of classic Christmas story, for a number of days after, baby has been born, and we find this little family in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22 doing something. The first thing we see is a faithful act. Actually, there are two faithful acts, and we're going to focus on just one of them this afternoon. When the time came for the purification rites, Required by the law of Moses, jo Joseph and Mary took him to the Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Little family, three people. In fact, two people and one that's virtually invisible because it's being carried by Mary. So incredibly insignificant. That's, that's what this is. Two people walking into the temple, you would not bat an eyelid at what's going on. They are just doing their thing. The first thing that they're doing is to present him 
to the Lord. And then Luke, Luke puts a couple of brackets or a bracketed explanation. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That's the first thing that they're doing. They're bringing this child, this baby, this firstborn to God and presenting him, consecrating him to God. And the second thing they're doing is to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's a purification rite. I'm, not, I'm going to ignore that one for this afternoon because I'm really interested in the first one. They're bringing Jesus, the firstborn male, to the temple to present him to the Lord. What's going on? Why is this part of the Christmas story? How does it become an anticipated event? And how is it critical for our understanding of how God works out salvation in the world? It's because of this. Let's go all the way back. We're going to go back to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2. If you don't know the storyline of the Bible, I'm going to be really quick. God's people are a tiny, tiny kind of spark of God speaking into the world through Abraham. Abraham's son is Isaac. Isaac's son is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One, Joseph, if you know the story, Joseph in the amazing technical dream coat. He goes to Egypt because his brothers abuse him and sell him into slavery. While he's in Egypt, he rises up to a prominent place. The brothers are absolutely destitute because of famine. And those brothers end up in Egypt being given food by the son, their brother, who they had sold into slavery. It's an amazing story. And then Joseph speaks to his brothers and says, God meant this for good. You might have meant this as a terrible thing for me, but God meant it for good because now what's going to happen is you're going to be preserved. So come and live in Egypt. And they go and live in Egypt. And then this little family of 12 brothers grows and grows and grows. And over decades, it becomes a significant community of people within Egypt. And because of that, they become a threat to the Egyptians. Pharaoh is terrified of them and decides that he's going to put them into slavery. They become again, and the brother who becomes abused and sold into slavery, now the whole nation becomes slaves. And God remarkably delivers them in an incredible way. He brings them out of Egypt, and he says this, you are my people. I've saved you. Now, I'm going to throw some things into your experience that are going to be really interesting. Hold on to them, understand them. And one of the things I want you to do is I want you to bring every firstborn male to me and to consecrate that firstborn male to me. That's the story. Why? Well, thankfully, Exodus chapter 13 and verse 14, there's an explanation, and it goes like this. In days to come, when your sons ask, what do you mean? That's a bit like us. When we're saying, why are you doing that? Say to him. 
With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. That Egypt, millennia earlier, feeds into the Christmas story at this point because a little family, Mary and Joseph, are going into the temple. They're bringing this little baby and they're saying, we remember how God delivered his people and it worked like this. Because God demanded of Pharaoh and Pharaoh stubbornly refused, it's as though... It's as though Pharaoh rose up and faced God out and said, I refuse to bow to you. God says, I'm going to punish you. And the firstborn is going to be killed. And in that moment, God's people are released. And so God says, every animal you are to sacrifice the firstborn to me. And every son you are to bring to me as well. And then as that verse says, and you are to redeem each of your firstborn sons. You're to buy back. You're to, I think you're to bring an alternative sacrifice to buy back the redeem, to redeem the son that has been given as an offering to God. Do you see the amazing picture about what went on in Egypt? On the one hand, we've got the firstborn that are killed. And on the other hand, God saves the firstborn of God's people. And he says, I want you to remember that because you need to know that I am a God who demands obedience, but I am also a God who brings salvation from oppression, from slavery. It sounds horrific, doesn't it? God slaying, hang on a sec, in a world where we understood the divine intervention, the power of the gods, the Egyptian people would have understood that God is displaying his power and authority over their gods. The absolute horrendous abuse of the people of Israel Children being killed, slaughtered, sacrificed by the Egyptian people is remedied when God intervenes. Wow, didn't expect this at Christmas, did we? A faithful act. God crushes the unrighteous and redeems the righteous. And this tiny little family... I remember in that. That's on the one side. That's what this little family are doing. Look, look at a little bit further on. As they arrive in the temple, verse 25, we've got Simeon. It's amazing, actually. Simeon's a fascinating character in art. There's kind of a tradition that has grown up which says that Simeon was a couple of hundred years old, a really ridiculously old man. 
Uh, and, and it's because he's been waiting, it seems, for the redemption of God's people and the promised Messiah, because God has made him this promise uh, that he would not die. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And because of that verse, everybody assumes that Simeon is really, really old, and then that kind of really, really old gets built into tradition and legend, which makes him a couple of hundred years old. And actually, the reality is, we have not got a clue how old Simeon was. He might have been 35, 40. He might have been 70, 80. We do not know. What we do know is that he was living a life of anticipation. He believed God had made him a promise and he believed God would keep that promise, which is that he would see the kind of promise of salvation that God had promised all the way back through the Old Testament. He's saying in verse 26 that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the promised one. And Simeon's in the temple that day, Mary and Joseph kind of without any fanfare, with, with kind of just normal kind of behavior, walk into the temple and Simeon explodes with joy. He just explodes with joy because he looks at this tiny little baby and he says, by the power of God speaking into him and him seeing he says, this is God's Messiah. That is crazy, I think, culturally, because I think all of the Jewish mindset was the expectation that the Messiah would be revealed with power and with, with strength and with kind of oppressing all of the, the oppressors. He would turn around the injustice. And he actually says, this tiny little baby, that's the Messiah. It's just incredible. What does he say? These are some of the, I think, some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. If you could, if you could hold on to a, a, a way to live life, it would be this. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. We don't know how old Simeon is. We assume he might have been older because of that. But if you're 20, 30, 35, 40, 45, however old you are, imagine being able to live life now, being able to say with peace and with confidence, it really doesn't matter now when you dismiss me. It really doesn't matter now when my life ends because I've seen your salvation. That's what Simeon is saying. 
He's, he's living a life in anticipation of something. But when he sees it, he has this peace. It's this peace which says that I no longer have to look for the next thing because I've seen the thing. I no longer ex- need to jump onto the next hope because I've seen the most incredible hope that could ever be presented before me. And it is the salvation that God has written into the history of the world, which is his Messiah. Imagine being able to say that I am living in the narrative of God's salvation plan. Do you know we can do that by saying that we have seen Jesus? None of us have seen Jesus. But I've seen Jesus. I've seen the story of Jesus. I've seen the salvation, this remarkable, incredible salvation plan of God. I've seen the presence of God in the world, in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if we have seen that, if we hold on to that, the reality is that we don't need to anticipate anything more. That is as great and as high and as good and as securing and as safe and hope-filled as it can be. I have a future. I have a hope, Simeon says. I pick up that verse in Jeremiah which says, I've, I've come to give you hope and a future And he says, that's what it means. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's given me a hope and a future, and I believe it. And when we see Jesus, a tiny little baby at Christmas, we see the salvation of God. We see the salvation plan of God worked out in this world. Living in God's salvation story, that's what is opened up for us. Here's the interesting thing, though. How is that worked out? Hmm. Well, the little child who's brought to the temple to be redeemed from the justice of God, it turns out is the one who bears the justice and the wrath of God. He becomes the unredeemed. Isn't that remarkable? This little baby who comes to the temple, who Mary and Joseph say, we consecrate him to you, we redeem him back for life, and God says, you can have him for a while, but ultimately, I will crush him. Because he will be the unredeemed, so that the redeemed who believe in him might have life. But, we can be sure that that works out, because I will redeem him on the third day when he rises again. And I will show that he defeats death. I will show that he is the one who is truly the Messiah. Because he can defeat the greatest enemy that every one of us face. 
And I can show that he is the one who bears the judgment, yet transfers his righteousness to those who believe. My prayer, the prayer of this church, is that as we journey over these next few weeks to Bethlehem, that we will truly, deeply see the Messiah, the salvation that God has promised in Jesus.